We're in the 27th chapter of Acts. It's a rather lengthy passage. I'll just recite a few verses, but it's on page 139 in your New Testament of your Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along or follow the story for yourself. And it says, Mary uh, told the children Paul is on a mission to go to Rome and take the gospel uh, to Caesar and therefore uh, throughout all the earth. And uh, he is getting ready to sail, but it's not the good time of the year to sail the Mediterranean. He warns them not to leave yet uh, because November through March 15th was a difficult time to sail, but they decide uh, they could finish this run and therefore help the profits of the uh, company. So they set out and that's where we pick up the story in verse 13. A gentle south wind began to let blow, so they seized the opportunity and uh, set uh, weighed anchor and set sail along the coast of Crete. But not very long after, a hurricane-force wind called the Nor'easter swept down from the island, and the ship was caught up in the storm and not able to head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. And then the story picks up that they spend many days uh, lost at sea. Soldiers are fearful. I mean, the sailors are fearful. They can't even eat. After 14 days of not eating, Paul, who's been assured by God that no one will perish, uh, in a meal almost uh, Eucharistic in its uh, symbolism, uh, blesses God and feeds all 276 on board, uh, tells them as they sight land a little bit later um, not to... uh, swim for it because the sailors are tempted to do that along with the guards and just uh, rather than risk a shipwreck and then they were just going to let the prisoners go down with the ship. But Paul says we've all got to do this to stay alive together and in fact they do their shipwrecks on the sandbar. They're able, every one of them, to make it to land safely and that is the story and the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated please. Sea stories and sea voyages hold a real fascination for me. It's almost like uh, an, an, uh, it's appealing and yet, um, uh, and let at the same time uh, repeal and, and that I'm attracted to it and yet I always have this deep fear that I'm going to drown at sea one day. Uh, but I'm not the only one fascinated by sea stories. I think all of us have been from the beginning. Some of the great literature has to do, uh, and the great stories that are passed down have to do with sea voyages like uh, Homer's Odysseus or Sinbad the Sailor or even true stories like uh, The Perfect Storm. My wife and I were in Michigan uh, and they were doing an outdoor concert uh, by the American Legion Band at Lake Mackintosh. And uh, was right by Lake Michigan. And the, the central feature of the night was um, uh, a, com- a original composition about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which took place in 1975 on Lake Superior, and 29 lives were lost. Some of you may remember that Canadian singer Gordon Lightfoot uh, sort of brought that up uh, to everyone's notice. But it was fascinating. That was like the big event of the evening, and they had slides of the building of the ship. They had slides of some of the voyages on the ship carrying uh, iron ore, and then, of course, they had been renderings or pictures of other storms, and all of us 
riveted on the screen. There's something about a good sea voyage story that really gets our attention. The Bible's no different. There's some pretty good sea voyage stories in, in the Bible, starting with Noah and his ark. But in today's one of them, uh, Acts 27, whereas Mary uh, reminds us that, or told the children, Paul is trying to get to Rome for God. Um, a great storm comes up. They haven't listened to his advice and stayed in the port. Everyone's life is at risk. All 276, but they follow Paul's instruction, and in fact, they are all delivered. There's other great sea story, uh, voyage stories in the New Testament. Remember Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, also on, on a mission of God with his disciples, is asleep in the boat when a great storm comes up. Remember, they wake Jesus up and he calms the storm. But a lot of commentators that I've read believe that God intended us to read the story of Paul and his shipwreck and the storm at sea next to another very famous story of a sea voyage that many of us learned in Bible school if we were there as children, and that is the story of Jonah. Do you remember Jonah? God gave Jonah a mission to go to Nineveh, and Jonah decided to get on a ship and go a different direction. So a giant storm uh, comes up, and eventually, remember, Jonah gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a big fish. The sea calms, and Jonah ends up in uh, Nineveh after repenting. Well, what I want to do this morning is take that suggestion seriously, that God intends Paul and Jonah maybe to be looked at alongside each other. And I just want to hit a few highlights for you this morning. If you put Paul... Next to Jonah, the first thing you see is they are both on a mission from God. Uh, separated by time, so we can't call them the Blues Brothers, but on a mission for God. Paul's mission is to go to Rome, to see Caesar. Now, you've heard it said that in Las Vegas, what happens there stays there. But biblically, the understanding is what happens in Rome goes to all the world. That if we can just get the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus into the capital city of the empire, it will hit the entire world. So that is Paul's goal. He's on a mission for God. Jonah is sent on a mission that he chooses not to accept, to go to another great city called Nineveh in the ancient world. The Bible even says it is a great city because, obviously, if we can get the, um, the realization of God's forgiveness to Nineveh, if they will repent, then the news of God's love will travel all over the known world. And so the very first thing we learn, I think, from the story is God has a real interest in getting the good news of God's love out to all people. That's why it's called the good news and not the good secret. It's to get out. God wants everyone to hear of it. And the best way is to get to the center of the culture in the world and, uh, and let it disseminate from there. Well, the second thing they have in common, you noticed, I know already, and that is storms threaten both of their missions. Paul's on a mission. He's going, uh, leaving Jerusalem. He's, his goal is to end up in Rome to go before Caesar. And uh, they set out at a time of year when they shouldn't set out. And sure enough, a great storm comes up. But what's interesting is that, um, that storms are not only literal in the Bible, I think they're also metaphorical. There are literal storms, but they also remind us that all of us in our life 
go through storms. Let's look at Paul just for an example. Uh, From what we know about Paul, Paul was beaten. Paul was stoned within an inch of his life, uh, thrown off a cliff, which is how you usually began stoning. And then you drop stones on on top of them when you pushed them off the the cliff. Uh, He had been uh, shackled. He'd been left, arrested, left to rot in prison for two years. He'd been through a number of shipwrecks, if we're uh, to also pair up acts with uh, letters uh, that he wrote. Paul's been through all sorts of trouble. And so as Mary taught the children, trying to serve God doesn't exempt you from trouble. In fact, it may even increase the amount of trouble that comes into your life. But know this, no person is exempt from trouble. Jesus gave a weather forecast centuries ago. And basically, this is what he says in the 16th chapter of John. He said, you will have trouble always. In this world, you'll always have trouble. John 16, 33. So he says, forecast for today, trouble. Forecast for tomorrow, trouble. Seven-day forecast, trouble. It just comes with the territory. Isaiah knows it. That's why God says through Isaiah, and we read it at the start of the service today, when you go through the rivers, when you go through the water, when you're in the fire, God doesn't say anything when I take you over the rivers, when I fly you above the waters, or when I help you skirt the fire. God doesn't say that. The, the understanding is all of us go through trial, struggle, and opposition. This is the very last thing Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. He tells a story about two guys that build. One builds on sand, one builds on rock. But what do they have in common? Storms come to both houses. Everybody suffers storms. Or to put it in another, another way, it doesn't matter which little pig you are and whether you use brick or straw or wood, the wolf comes, knocks on the door. Storms are just part of our life. And people who serve God not only get no exemption, sometimes it's even worse. And why shouldn't it be? If we're serving God, then we stand for trying to make the world and work with God in making the world more as God intended, a place of peace and justice and beauty, redemption, love, all those things we're trying to do. But there are forces in the world that prefer slavery, darkness, chaos, oppression. And those forces do not give way easily to the forces of good and light. This is what Peter, Jesus' own disciple, said in the letter to Peter. He said, he said to his church, why are you surprised when trials happen? What? Why are you surprised? There's a war on. You know, in the Civil War or World War I, I can't imagine somebody standing up from a trench or turning around going, hey, they're shooting at us. Like it's a surprise. This is not news. The forces that are opposed to good We'll strike back. C.S. Lewis put it this way 60 years ago. He said, we live in enemy-occupied territory. When Jesus comes in the flesh on earth, he said, it is an invasion that establishes a beachhead for the forces of goodness against evil. So if you don't think evil is going to respond to your attempt at goodness, uh, then you will be very surprised when storms come. Expect them. However... Jonah has storms, and Jonah's not trying to do what God wants at all. Paul gets into storms because Paul is trying to carry out God's will. Jonah runs into a storm because he's running from God, and God's trying to get his attention. Apparently, God sends a storm to wake Jonah up to uh, go back to obedience to God. And so, um, 
I remember years ago, I, I was at a point in life, and I just, very early on after my schooling, and I was thinking, maybe this isn't the right place for me or the right thing for me. And I remember considering doing something different other than what God had led me to do. And I have to tell you, I don't know if it's psychosomatic, I don't know what it was, but for days there was no sleep at night and there was no napping and sleep during the day. It was as if God said, I'd like you to reconsider this one. So sometimes the storms are to redirect us. Sometimes the storms are because they're fighting against us and we're doing the right thing. $64,000 question is, how do you know when you run into a storm? Is it because you're doing right and you're opposed by uh, for doing right? Or is it because you're doing wrong and God's trying to get you back to doing right? How do you know whether it's a storm from uh, enemy or it's a storm from God because you're messing up? Well, here's the short answer. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, 100%, I don't know. Here's a few thoughts I have, though. Uh, one of them is, ask God. You know, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to show you the storm I'm in right now. Is it because I'm doing right? Or is it because there's something in my life that needs to be corrected? And I think God may indeed show you. Find people you trust as Christians. Not necessarily your closest friends, because sometimes your closest friends will always give you the answer they, they think they're supposed to give because they love you and they want to encourage you. But people that you trust in the faith. Sometimes, you know, we're stuck in the trees, but other Christians can see the forest. And so sometimes asking them and saying, this is going on, what do you think? Is it because I'm going the wrong way? Or am I going the right way and I just need to keep working at it and stay faithful? I'd ask for help. Another barometer is sometimes, um, since peace is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that eventually you'll find an inner calm if you're, if you're on the right path, doing the right thing, even if it's opposed. Now, it's not always the case. It is true that Jesus had an inner calm and he slept on the Sea of Galilee when there was a storm. But it's also true that Jonah was asleep in the middle of the boat during the storm. Uh, but Jesus was because he knew who he was and what God had him to do. And so he slept peacefully. Jonah was asleep because he just didn't care. He didn't care about what God was asking him to do and didn't want to do it. But sometimes uh, my own level of inner peace about something may be an indication. But either way, there will be storms. Another thing that grabs me about the story, just um, quickly, but I don't want to miss it, is that because Paul is faithful and does what God tells him to do, 276 people are saved in the storm. Because Jonah is disobedient, I don't know how many soldiers are on, or, or sailors are on that boat, but their lives are all in danger. It just reminds me of a basic fact, which is everything we do affects the people in our sphere of influence. There are ripples to everything we do. There's no such thing as, well, look, that's between me and God. No, it's not. It's between you and God and everybody that you intersect in life. And so if you're obedient, it will go well for the people around you generally. And if you're disobedient, you will cause the people around you to struggle more. Your responsiveness really makes a difference. And Paul's responsiveness, we, we see here, is, is a powerful example. Paul talks to God, sees an angel, and talks to God, and God says, here's the instructions. Nobody's going to die, but you need to do this. Everybody stays on the boat, even if it looks like you're going down. And because Paul prays and talks with God, it works out. In Jonah's story, everybody prays but Jonah. 
In fact, they even have to come downstairs while he's sleeping in the boat. And the first thing they say to him is, why won't you pray? Jonah won't pray because he's a lot like me. There's a word for that. And I've shared it with you before. The word is, or the words are functional atheist. A functional atheist is someone who claims to believe in Jesus, even believes they believe in Jesus. But when push comes to shove, they're going to start throwing stuff overboard before they start praying. When push comes to shove, they're going to, they're going to try to navigate, even when they can't see the stars, rather than going to God to ask for direction. Functional atheist claims to believe in God, but in their everyday life, makes no reference to God. Paul does. And Paul's closeness to God throughout this whole journey makes a difference for people. Finally, there's one other thing you need to know about both stories, and that is everybody on board who started out on board is saved. 276 in Paul's ship. Jonah's ship, we're not told how many, but this is interesting. The rabbis don't comment on how many, but they do say there were men from 70 nations on that ship. If you know anything about about the Jews, you know how some... First of all, it's not in the Bible. That's just the rabbi's comment. But 70 is a very symbolic number, 10 times 7, which just means basically everyone's included. All the nations of the earth are represented on Jonah's ship. And they don't go down. Why didn't they go down? Well, God intervened. Yes. But notice something else. I think lives of the crew on both these ships are saved when one thing happens. Someone acts selflessly. Someone behaves in a sacrificial manner. On Paul's ship, the temptation for the crew and the guards are, let's leave the prisoners, let's jump in the water, we can see the shore, let's get there. And whatever happens to them, well, it happens. And Paul says, no, we've got to stay together. We're going to wreck, we're going to wreck together, but we're all going to be saved. So when the men give up their self-interest, their self-preservation, Everybody, 276, gets saved. Flashback to the story of Jonah. The storms are up. The seas are rough. When do they calm down? When Jonah comes upstairs and says, this is my fault. Throw me overboard. When Jonah sacrifices himself, the seas are calm. It is sacrifice that brings salvation, that brings calm, that brings life. I can't help but think about Jonah's story. Do you remember? Tossed overboard and he gets swallowed up by a big fish. You know how many days he was in there? Anybody? Come on, y'all went to Bible school. Three. Swallowed up three days after his sacrifice. Then spit back out and a city is saved. Come with me. There's a man who will sacrifice himself for the 70, for all the nations. For three days he's swallowed up by death. And then when he comes out, when he spit out, an entire world, everyone who ever lived, has the opportunity to be saved. Jesus takes Jonah and takes Jonah to the place that only God can take it. A story of sacrifice that yields life. What's interesting to me is that the church has long seen themselves as people in the midst of a storm. Donna pointed this out to me. If you look on the east side, and it's, it's, the, it's the bottom um, window 
uh, in the stained glass and it's not lit up, that's a boat on the sea. That has been the Christian symbol for the church from the second century. We have always known we were in a storm-topped life, and we've always known the only way to be saved is through Jesus. That's the Jonah part. What happens to people when they are saved in the storm? That's the Paul part. They now go and spread and share the good news to others. I love sea stories. One of my favorite ones is celebrating its 100th anniversary, the Titanic, uh, this past April. And, you know, Robert Ballard found the Titanic, and then they made a movie, and all sorts of articles and research started flourishing again. One of the interesting things that came out to me was the story of Harold Lowe, L-O-W-E. Harold was uh, commanding one of the lifeboats. As you probably know, not all the lifeboats got away from the Titanic. A number didn't. But one of them that did... Lifeboat number 14 was a little different under Lowe's command. While the other lifeboats left the Titanic as fast as they could, they got out of Dodge, most of them half full. One lifeboat went back toward the sinking ship and picked up survivors even at the cost and risk of its own life. That was Harold Lowe going back into the storm toward the wreck to save those still alive. 1987, the 75th anniversary of the Titanic, they interviewed a woman on TV who was more than 90. And I don't remember much of the interview, but I do remember the last thing she said on camera, which was this. She said, I will never forget lifeboat number 14. Because of them, I am here today. That's our story. People saved by Christ in a storm whose only response and best response is to go out and save others.